From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we will talk with San Francisco State constitutional law professor Joe Tuman about the life and legacy of Justice Antonin Scalia, who recently passed away. And after that, North Carolina State Representative Ed Haynes will join us to discuss the state's redistricting efforts. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Last week, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died unexpectedly at a West Texas resort at the age of 79. Justice Scalia brought intellectual heft to the conservative cause, and it is unlikely that we shall see his like again. Joining us to discuss Justice Scalia's Joseph Tuman. Professor Tuman teaches communications and constitutional law at San Francisco State University. Joe Tuman, welcome to The Public Morality. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's our honor. Why don't we begin with you placing Justice Scalia's legacy in context? Well, uh, it, you mean as a Supreme Court justice? As a Supreme uh, Court justice, yes, yeah, sir. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, you could go issue by issue in terms of, of the um, some of the controversy he was most involved with uh, in terms of uh, gun control, in terms of uh, the different ways we have tried to move around Roe versus Wade, um, you know, eating around the sides of it instead of going right to the heart of the matter, and he was certainly in the fight for that. The whole question about uh, do you strictly construe the Constitution by what's written there, or do you allow people to impute or imply meaning into things that may not have been assumed a long time ago? Um, but for me, uh, I mean, so you could talk about all of those, but for me, I think the the two things, because I want to be respectful of him, the man is, is, has only been dead for a short time. Um, the two things that I think are, are a part of his legacy for those of us who read uh, a lot of his opinions and, and uh, followed his arguments to see what he was trying to say um, are these. Uh, first, uh, he very clearly strongly opinionated uh, individual. And uh, in my it, part of what I teach is, is constitutional law, and so I, I've had a chance not just to study his uh, opinions, but those of many other justices as well. Um, he was one of the smarter justices that we've had on the court. Very, very, very smart man. Um, I, I must share with you that I didn't always agree uh, with his arguments, but you could not dispute I think, um, his intelligence or his brilliance a lot of the time. And he was also, I think, if we're thinking about his legacy, um, someone who really seemed to enjoy a good fight, a good debate, and didn't like to lose. And uh, you know, some people, if you were on the receiving end of some of that um, in oral arguments or behind the, the closed doors and chambers or whatever, might have uh, interpreted that as a kind of feistiness and aggressiveness. But I think he would say that, that um, it was just a good debate. And, and he was one of those individuals, for thinking of his legacy, who believed that, that he knew what he knew, and, and what he knew he thought was right. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I think that's really the larger legacy. And he clearly was ideologically, I think, on some issues motivated, um, articulated and defended his positions, um, was part of a voting block, and, and was extremely influential in those last several years with people like, uh, uh, well, other members of the court, um, uh, that uh, uh, I think voted along with him. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Justice Thomas in particular. And uh, these are the things, I think, that formed a part of his legacy uh, with respect to that. But of those issues, that, Byron, that I mentioned at the beginning, of the different kinds of cases, 
I think he was probably most prominent in articulating a position um, that's uh, what's called, uh, this is just jargon, originalism. But it goes to this question of whether or not um, in a modern time you can reinterpret what you think some vague language in a document like the Bill of Rights and the Constitution would mean today, or do you literally have to follow or, or try and divine what the framers intended several hundred years ago. Justice Scalia was one of those who believed that it was inappropriate to reinterpret or to give new meaning to something that you would really want to follow what was the original intent or the original commonly accepted meaning of words you know, several hundred years ago and follow that today. Well, oh, oh, actually, I'm going to ask you to say more about the doctrine of originalism versus sure. um, those of us, and I'll, I'll lay my bias on the table, who believe the Constitution is, is, is indeed a living document. Yeah. So, so say more about originalism, if you would. Well, sure. So a, a couple of different things for your listeners to, to think about. There are, and I hope this isn't mind-boringly, uh, you know, mind-numbingly boring, but... but uh, the that's a, we're public radio, on. Joe. Do not worry about mind-numbingly boring. That's, that's, <laughs> that's why we don't have commercials here. <laughs> right. So the three concepts I'll sketch out for you real quickly for your, your listeners are basically just uh, constructs or concepts of ways of thinking about how judges may interpret, for example, law. Right? And so one of these is a concept. We'll just start with the most basic one. The most basic of these is what's called strict construction. And if you are someone who believes in strict constructionism, it means that you only, if you're a judge looking at the application of law to set of facts, that you only construct or construe, it means interpret, the language of the law that, that's written. You don't look at that and say, well, they wrote it that way, but what they really meant was this. You just work with what's there. That's in the most basic form, strict construction. Originalism and another kind of theory called textualism are different. Originalism as a concept suggests that um, when someone writes something or says something at the time that they write it and publish it or they say it, that, that the meaning of that is fixed in time. So in that sense, it's kind of like strict construction. But um, to interpret, for example, what that means for originalism, you either look to what you think was the original meaning right, at the time uh, as evidenced by uh, what the people who said that or wrote it meant, right, and you look for evidence of that. Or you ask, well, if not the frame, like the framers of the Constitution, what they meant, what would reasonable people in that period of time, hundreds of years ago, have assumed that those words meant, right? And, and you look for evidence of that, and you say, if that's the meaning that they meant uh, or that they offered a couple hundred years ago, that's the, that's the language and the meaning we're going to apply today, and we can't reinterpret that. Textualism is sort of a variation on that. It's actually different from those, although it's going to sound similar. Textualism says you look at the words, what the words would mean if they were uttered by any normal speaker of English, right? And uh, sort of a, a common usage. And so these are different schools of thought. They apply them today, um, particularly more ideologically conservative judges and justices on the court in particular, apply these concepts today because uh, our tendency has been for last many, many decades, uh, for justices sometimes at the Supreme Court level to look at uh, uh, the language of, of the Bill of Rights, let's say the First Amendment as an example, and interpret um, the First Amendment, by the way, as your listeners know, is not just about free speech. It's also about freedom of press. It's about freedom of association. Who do you get to associate with? It's about the freedom to assemble, you know, if you're going to do a demonstration, uh, and so forth, freedom of expression as well. And uh, justices for a long time in looking at this have said this, is, this amendment is really about personal autonomy, personal freedom, right? And, and it was in that way that they implied that that personal freedom was about personal choices, and this was about you controlling 
what happens in your life. That is your private business. And the term privacy was sort of uh, implied, if you like, by judges and justices reading the First Amendment as being what the real meaning of that was. Uh, someone like Justice Scalia or Justice, he wasn't Justice, but Judge Bork, the guy who tried to get on the court, and others before who were more conservative said, the word privacy doesn't exist in the First Amendment, right? But privacy was nevertheless recognized by other iterations of the Supreme Court. They called it a penumbral right, and the word penumbral means implied. They said, when we look at what all these other rights in the First Amendment, for example, are, it's all about personal autonomy, that's about privacy, and that's clearly what was intended when they wrote this. And that was the basis then, for example, for cases like Roe versus Wade, when the issue before the court was not about the correctness of uh, when does life begin or when is it appropriate for a fetus to be aborted. The question was, who gets to make the decision? And the reason that people call themselves free choice instead of uh, being pro-life, um, is uh, pro-choice as opposed to pro-life, is because they recognize uh, the court's interpretation that says there's a privacy interest there that's implied. It may not have been written in the document hundreds of years ago, but that's what we believe it means. And a woman's body is, uh, your own body is one of those places um, that we believe uh, the person who owns that body should be able to make a choice for what happens to him or to her. And it's not government's place to get uh, in the middle of that. So someone like Justice Scalia would have looked at that and said, well, that's interesting, but that word privacy didn't exist in the, in the First Amendment back then. I mean, it may have existed in discussion, but they didn't write it that way. And since they didn't, it's not appropriate for you to imply it. And, and he says, if you want to change those things, I mean, he, this would have been one of his arguments. He would have said, we have an amendment process, amend the Constitution or, or whatever, and uh, do it that way. But for a judge to do that, he said, you're being a judicial activist, and uh, you're not an elected official. It's inappropriate to do that. That was his argument. Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple quick thoughts. Um, first of all, um, I was thinking about when you were giving your answer, and actually it kept me awake. I was riveted to my seat as you were outlining those, by the way. Oh. Uh, so, so, uh, but I was thinking about um, Thomas Jefferson on the issue of slavery. Yeah. And, and he wrote a letter saying that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing it, obviously, but it's for each generation to decide. It, yeah. You know, now, now I know some one of my listeners might say, well, Thomas Jefferson was not one of the authors of the Constitution. Yes, but but that whole Jeffersonian notion sort of runs counter to those three um, definitions under the rubric of originalism that you just articulated. Yeah. Yeah. And the other one, the other thought I had um, is that um, you use some non-strict constructionist language when you said reasonable people or reasonable persons, because yeah. when I when I took constitutional law, it was reasonable men. So that tell that's I sort of date myself right there. So yeah, <laughs> but no, but you've actually you've raised a very good point, and I know by the way, Byron, that your background intellectually is also in, in, in theology, I believe. Yes, and and so if I at the risk of of being controversial, but let me draw an analogy to. Uh, if you're Jewish to the Talmud or to, if you're Christian to the Old Testament, and, and uh, some of the things that are written there that clearly take uh, a gender perspective, um, and they were obviously written by men at the time. There probably weren't too many women who were, who were allowed to do that. Um, there are aspects uh, in the Old Testament or, or in the Talmud, the, the, the Ten Commandments, for example, which make perfect sense. 
in almost any concept, context about taking the life of another or stealing or telling lies. I mean, these are things you can find examples of that in cultures that aren't Judeo-Christian based. They, they make sense. They're good, sensible things that made sense thousands of years ago and they make sense today. But then there are other teachings, the dietary teachings, for example, in Judaism or in Islam, for example, about the consumption of pork or uh, for Judaism, the consumption of shellfish, which made sense a long time ago. But in modern times with modern medicine and modern types of food preparation, well, maybe pork is still bad for you, but you could probably make an argument that shellfish, if it's properly prepared, is perfectly safe today, and it wouldn't have been back then. And the question becomes, do all the things that were written before make sense in modern times, or, or is it appropriate to apply the basis of that, but, but to adjust for the times? You, you adjust to the times. And uh, the Ten Commandments is more, I think, bedrock principle than even the Bill of Rights in some ways. But still, in modern times, Christians and Jews will adjust for the times, I think. And, and, and there will be some who would rather not adjust for the times, but, but you live in a modern world. And so the question is, as it is for religion and law, do we adjust for the times or do we just deal with and interpret the stuff that somebody gave us from a couple hundred years ago? I don't know. What, what do you think? No, no, I actually, it, it, the, the irony here is um, that I actually wrote, a, I, I wrote an essay uh, for a theological magazine, oh, about 10 years ago, and the title of the, of the, of the magazine was Where the Bible and the Constitution uh, Coincide, uh-huh. and making, making just pretty much that argument you just put forth. So, um, but if we follow the logical conclusion of originalism, and then we think about how this country has evolved vis-a-vis race relations and yeah. abortion and same-sex marriage, um, these would be things that Justice Scalia would argue, and many times did, that these things don't appear in the Constitution, Correct. Uh, which left no other alternative but him to vote no. Uh, but now, so my question to you is, does his passing suggest that uh, what many see as an outmoded approach to the Constitution, is that finally going to be realized? Well, there will still be others um, who see it that way. And, and I guess I, I should say in his, uh, I don't want to defend the guy, but, but I mean, I think he was capable of Defend him. Don't defend him. We won't hold it against you. He, he was not the only one who believed in originalism. There were other justices uh, on the court including people like uh, Hugo Black, um, who is, by the way, if, you never, if you're not familiar with him, but I'm, I'm guessing you are, um, That's was, a good guess. <laughs> uh, uh, well, here's a person, in spite of his name, who was at a time when the Ku Klux Klan in its second iteration, the second time around, was actually seen as a service organization like the Rotary Club. Right. Hugo Black, as a young man, was a member of the Klan. And Hugo Black, later as a justice on the court, um, wrote some, uh, took some positions uh, that uh, advanced civil rights uh, in ways. And so... Uh, as an example of this, I mean, he was someone who, the great thing about being a judge is you get life tenure. Eventually you evolve in your positions. And so here, anyway, here was Hugo Black um, that, that eventually came around to be at least on some of the civil rights issues in the early cases, uh, probably a little more progressive and liberal. He was, on, he, was on the, he was on Brown v. Board, was he that's, not? That's correct. And uh, I believe so, yes. And, and uh, here was someone, though, who also... Um, uh, was one of those who was uncomfortable with the idea of, of reinterpreting words in the Constitution. So it wasn't, strictly speaking, always just uh, conservatives, uh, justices, so-called conservatives who saw this. There are just some judges who believed their justices, also lower court judges who believed that it was risky to uh, read something into words that uh, may not be what was meant. And that's where the controversy. So 
to, to your question, will his passing mean that this will go away? No, I think there probably are still some people who believe that. And um, they are, uh, I think, a, a smaller percentage of uh, those who might be uh, in these judgeships right now. But um, uh, I don't think it will go away completely. I think there will still be people. And, and, you know, for a lot of people, it doesn't really matter until we get to these divisive social and political issues, which is the reason that the public pays attention to this at all. Such, you know, subjects like you mentioned, like, um, uh, uh, you know, reproductive freedoms, uh, abortion rights, um, also relational privacy issues like uh, same-sex marriage and the rest of it, uh, and, and so forth. These are, these are big questions. And th- this is when the public starts to pay attention. And oftentimes we find, unfortunately, that where you end up sitting on the question of do you follow the strict language of this or are you allowed to interpret it really depends or is, is cued by what is your position on these social issues. You know, if you're someone who believes that abortion is wrong, you're probably going to buy into the school of thought that says don't read the word privacy into the Constitution. If you're someone who believes that women uh, should have an opportunity to choose what happens to their own body um, and that government has no place in a person's body, then you're probably going to look at this and say that's obviously what they meant in the First Amendment, of course. You know, they just weren't faced with that question at the time, but if they were here today, clearly they'd apply it that way. And, and I don't think that's going to change for a lot of people. These are still divisive issues, and that will probably mean that we'll continue to be divided as a country on some of these things. Well, you mentioned earlier, you, you, made, you made the, uh, the theological reference. Yeah. And um, talking here with Joe Tuman, professor at San Francisco State University. Um, in that sense, though, because I, I think that... Um, um, biblical references, as you mentioned, and, and even constitutional references, I, I think it makes us all walk in contradictions um, to some degree. And I think that you could argue that Justice Scalia was an originalist when it suited him. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically right now of uh, Bush v. Bush v. Gore, which has oh, yeah. no originalism <laughs> embedded in it. But when Scalia was asked about Bush v. Gore subsequently, he would say, get over it. Yeah, so, over it. <laughs> I mean, so, so h- h- how do those two square? Or, well, do they, or do they? <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that they do in, uh, with respect to originalism. I think, I mean, he can make the argument better for himself if he was here than, than I could, but I, my, my guess would be, uh, Byron, that what he would say would be, in a, you know, before the words get over it, look, the, the system um, allowed for a legal challenge. The, we are, the Supreme Court is, as they say, the, the head of the snake. You know, it's, it's the thing at the front, and whatever way the head of a snake wiggles, the rest of the snake has to follow. And it is, it is the last word on the law. There is, no, there is nothing above it, um, at least in, in, a, in, a, in a human context. Maybe in a spiritual context, of course, it's something else. But, um, you know, for humans on this planet in this country, the Supreme Court's the last word. And so I think he would have said, look, it's, it fell to us to make the call, and five of us felt one way, and that was the call that we made. And it was pretty clearly, you know, uh, I, I, I'm somebody who has all my life defended the court even with the ideological labels that we use as liberal conservative centrists, because I've always said, you know what, they have life tenure, they'll evolve in their opinions. Earl Warren, who we put on the court from California, the governor of California, right. was supposed to be this moderate or conservative, and he turned out that was the guy that, that gave us Miranda rights and the, you know, all these rights for the criminally accused, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower regretted. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Worst damn decision ever made in my yeah, life, to quote yeah, Ike. You know? <laughs> and, and 
and and uh, so you can never tell. I'm somebody who always depended on them saying, you study the history of this thing, you'll see that they evolve. You know, they they look at it on a case by case basis. But that particular case you mentioned, that was the one day I had to sit and rethink my thoughts about that because they clearly voted on ideological lines and and. It, that didn't square with originalism at all, because I'm pretty sure if you brought the founders in, if you could bring them back and say, okay, so who do we want to give this election to, if you get to call it? Um, the guy that didn't get the popular vote, <laughs> and, and when people clearly were mis, you know, misunderstood, or maybe there was some monkey business there, or uh, the guy that did win the popular vote. And, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't square. But Scalia would say, look, you... You gave it to us. We get to make the call. We're the court of last resort. We're the final. We're the one umpire, the one referee whose you know vote can't be changed or challenged, and that's how we called it. So the, the, the interesting thing about what you what, what you said, though, but you cannot cite to this day Bush v. Gore and use it as precedent, which which which, which to me is, is is fascinating. They would make this ruling, but it, you you can't use this as precedent. So that sort of speaks to your ideological lines. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. I, I, it, would, I don't think you'd want to use it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Either. Um, it, it's, it, it is hard to reconcile. That one is because it kind of did make the case uh, that, that the judge, that in that moment, the justices were what people always feared they were, what they were ideological. And I, maybe the other way to answer this question, or to make the point that I was trying to make before about life tenure and evolving, um, is that it's probably silly for us to assume that as human beings that they don't have a worldview, each member of the court doesn't have a worldview, personal beliefs, religious beliefs, philosophy, life experience, of course they do. And even if they say they're not going to be influenced by those things, they're just going to look at the facts of the case, how could you not be influenced by all the things in your life, all the things your parents said at the dinner table, all the things you learned in school? How could you not be influenced by that when you're interpreting the facts of any case? Of course they have bias, the same bias that any other person does. You know, the question is, uh, for Scalia or for anybody, uh, Scalia's friend, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, on the other side of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, a liberal justice. You know, the, the question is, um, are you in, interpreting the law, even if, if you are the product and the sum of all of your own experience as well, are you doing so in, in a way that is still more or less objective to the facts, I mean, gives a fair treatment, a fair reading of everything, and applies the law as you understand it? And uh, and that's, I think, what they try to do. It's not a perfect uh, system, but it's a pretty good one, I think, still in the end, as much as I was disappointed by that decision. You touched on it um, slightly uh, earlier, but um, I just want to follow up. And, and what made him, in your view, you know, such a lightning rod that he is adored by conservatives and animus to those on the left? Yeah. Well, I, I, and I have to say, I think if, if uh, he, he got there, the quick answer to your question is he was articulate. Um, he was very smart. I, mean, I don't think anybody who ever debated him said that, that he was uh, unintelligent or you know, lacked the ability to express his opinions. And he clearly was somebody, I, 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 this is my sense of him, at least watching him professionally, um, who didn't look like he tolerated fools. Right? I mean, if he thought you were, what your, your, your position and your argument was silly or stupid, uh, in uh, oral arguments before the Supremes, before the court, the, he'd tell you in so many words, by the way, his, his expression, uh, the tone of his voice, or the, the sharpness of his questions, which were not really questions, they were arguments that might have had a question mark at the end. Right. And, uh, uh, and so, in some ways, to your question, he, he brought that on himself by being willing to be the guy that wore the black hat, you know, the, 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 the bad guy. 
and um, you know, sometimes in different classes or different presentations, you know, I would hear sometimes people refer to him as, you know, Darth Vader. You know, this, the, <laughs> you know, the the the, the guy was uh, uh, the, the force of evil or whatever. Um, but he was just strongly opinionated, like I said at the beginning, and very smart, and had a view that for for some of these issues was probably not in line with the majority of the population, and. And and so it wasn't difficult to paint him that way. But I will say that if uh, if if somebody like a Robert Bork, uh, Judge Bork is now deceased, but remember back back when he absolutely was that, that's how nominated. that's how Justice Kennedy got his seat. Yeah, well, exactly. And and uh, you know most of these people who get on the court today, whether you're a so-called conservative or liberal or centrist or whatever, they're all coached the same way. You know, there's an extensive um, process for appointing someone as a nominee to the court. The president works with uh, the Department of Justice. The FBI does an extensive background check. Uh, the, the American Bar Association folds into this as well and does a professional background check uh, as well, you know, to, to speak to your qualifications. And you've you got to be pretty squeaky clean to make it through that before they even send your name over for the Senate and all their lawyers and all their background checkers to go over you as well. And you're not going to send somebody over to the Congress, to the Senate, who is going to flunk one of the basic tests, you know, the background checks or whatever. So you're only going to send someone up who's pretty much sterling. And then the question is, are they going to get through the confirmation, you know, question and answer process? And unfortunately, for the last many years, really since the 1970s, uh, abortion has been not just a litmus test. It has been pretty much the litmus test. And it's, it, they ask the same darn questions. These hearings never need to take this long, but they ask, it takes so long because all of them are thinking of different ways to ask the same question, which is, would you vote to re, you know, repeal Roe? And the funny thing is, whether you're a liberal or conservative appointee, a nominee, rather, you answer the question the same way nowadays. You're coached to right. by the president's people. And the answer that they all give, you can watch it this next time around, is they'll say, I cannot, it would be inappropriate for me to comment on a case that I haven't heard yet. And uh, that's not what judges do. So I can't, I, I, I can't respectfully, I can't answer that question today. And of course, that frustrates the senators because all the cameras are on them, and they're trying to make points with you know their constituents back home. And so they keep asking variations on that question for several days, and then eventually they give up. And unless there's something that the guy has done that's really stupid, they confirm him. And uh, because it, there's no reason not to, otherwise they're they're clearly qualified. And so we never really know <laughs> going in what their position is, which is also probably appropriate because they should hear cases and then make a decision, not judge something that's a hypothetical. Uh, I was, um, I was thinking. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just, you just finish. Finish on Bork real quickly. Yes. Your point about you know Scalia being a scourge. Bork was more of a scourge because Bork was honest enough, and, and somebody got after me the other day when a friend of mine is conservative. Hmm. He said, "Well, you can't call Bork a. a I'd call him dimwitted." And you can't call him a lunkhead or whatever because he was a brilliant guy. And I said, of course he was. But he was dumb to be honest in a situation where you're going to be punished for telling the truth. And when he got asked about uh, Roe versus Wade and Rezzi, he said exactly what he thought. And, and he even debated them, if you remember. Yes. And, and that, was, that was the wrong way to do it. It was guaranteed in a political process. Um, he was out of there. Well, he became a verb after that, right? He we, did. He we, got we, borked. we borked. We borked somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and so Scalia, when he came along, knew how to handle it differently. He didn't answer that question the same way. But on the bench, he was pretty feisty. He was pretty feisty. Um, a long answer to your question, but anyway, that's no. That's it's, 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 I, it's, think that's, he was, he, I think he brought some of that on himself once he got in. W- willingly. Yeah. Um, 
as a follow-up to, to your last question, um, what I find uh, interesting about Scalia's legacy, factoring um, your previous response, he's probably best known um, to the average individual um, about his doctrine of originalism, yes. his pithy dissents. Yep. Uh, but in my view, and please correct me if I, if I have a misinterpretation here, he was not exactly the go-to person to write for the majority. And if that's true, why do you think that is? Well, I don't know that it is true in every instance. There were some that he did write. Right. I much, I, 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 some people might speculate that it was something about him, and I guess I'm resisting that impulse, although, you know, because I'm being respectful since he's just passed away. I think it depended on, on uh, the topic. The court usually, I believe the way that this works is that the chief justice gets to assign someone in the majority to write the majority opinion. And, uh, and so it would depend upon what the topic was. I'll give you an example of one he did write. Um, but later, I think the court maybe regretted it in some ways. Uh, he authored an opinion in 1992 that those of your listeners who are uh, interested in hate speech and civil rights would find of interest called, the opinion was called RAV versus City of St. Paul. And it was a case that dealt with cross-burning. And in this particular case, St. Paul had uh, written a city ordinance that made it a misdemeanor um, to engage in symbolic behavior or verbal behavior that targeted people on the base of race or ethnicity or uh, religion, etc. And in the law that they wrote, they not only said you couldn't do this, but they gave examples like painting a swastika somewhere or burning a cross as examples of what they were talking about. Well, there were some kids, and they were minors, who had done that. That's why they used the initials instead of their names in the case, R.A.B. And they had broken up a chair, a wooden chair, and they could reconstitute it as a cross. And they thought it would be a funny prank to burn that cross in the neighbor, in the yard of a neighbor across the street who happened to be African-American. And, of course, that wasn't funny at all. And the police were called in, and the children, you know, the, the district attorney had to figure out what's the right way to handle this. He could have charged them with arson or attempted murder or trespass. But they said, we have this, this misdemeanor on, on record, and let's make a statement. And it, it was appropriate punishment. It was a misdemeanor. They were going to pay a fine and maybe do some community service or whatever, and they would make an example of them. Well, the parents, of course, appealed this to the court, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion invalidating the city law. And a lot of civil rights advocates said, you have to be kidding me. You're defending cross-burning. But Scalia said, well, it's not about that. It's about the fact that the law took sides. If the law had just said only regulate speech or expression that targets people on the basis of race, et cetera, et cetera, any speech that does that to anybody on the, you know, on the basis of their race, he said, that would have been fine. But the moment you mentioned a swastika or a burning cross, you were taking sides. And he said, that's not what the government should do. Now, technically, he wasn't wrong about that point, right? But for a decade, Byron, it left the impression, if you were looking at the court, that the court sort of didn't care about cross-burning. And in 2003, in a case called Virginia versus Black, Sandra Day O'Connor, the court's first female member, wrote a pretty blistering opinion that altered Justice Scalia's original opinion and, and cleared up this con conception that the court didn't care about cross-burning. She traced the history of cross-burning, and she associated it with violence as a precursor to lynching and all the rest of it that came from the Klan and others. And I said it clearly is a form of intimidation, and the First Amendment doesn't protect that. And 
it's perfectly fine to have laws that restrict this. So the court by that time, I think, was it was in that process where I think in some ways he was becoming more marginalized at the extreme positions he had taken, which might have been technically correct, but still were sort of socially inappropriate. And uh, maybe that's the answer to your question about did he get to write a lot of majority opinions. I think um, uh, he wasn't always in step with the times. Do you see conservatives... Um lionizing Justice Scalia in a similar manner that they've done, and I would even add rather successfully, with uh, President Reagan? Yeah, I do. Uh, Because, uh, well, and and I have to say, at the same time, it's not totally surprising today to see all these people who support someone who says crazy things like Donald Trump, right? Uh, 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 There will always be an element, whether you're left or right of center, of admiring people who speak their minds. And Scalia was one of those people on the court. Uh, Trump is one of those people in politics. And while a lot of other people might listen to them, whether you're on the court or in politics, and say, gosh, I'm offended by what you say, there are other people who say, wow, I appreciate this. He's telling the truth, and I privately think the same thing myself, and he's speaking for me. And, uh, and I think a lot of people felt that way about Ronald Reagan, although I have to say in, in, in defense of President Reagan, he, he was a little more careful about the extreme positions he would take. <laughs> Yes, on things I, than either of these two people I've just mentioned. Um, but yeah, I do think that they probably will engage in a little historical revisionism on him. I, 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 I was going to say, I think we can make the argument that uh, President Reagan's uh, position on immigration is 180 degrees from what uh, Mr. Trump oh, yeah. is articulating right now. Yeah, so it is, absolutely. And, and, and the funny thing about President Reagan that I think we forget, for those of us who lived here in California, where not everybody was a fan, right? But nevertheless, Reagan... You know, was also someone who knew how to work with the state legislature when he was governor. He wasn't, he didn't dictate and believed in those relationships. He was kind of an old school politician in that way. And uh, he, I think he only, the history on him will tell you that he really only became a Republican because his wife's father said, if you want to get in politics, that's the party you should join. Right. Before that, he had been a Democrat. and uh, A very strong Democrat. Yeah, a very strong <laughs> Democrat. But he's one of those guys whose his politics, you know, depended on which way the wind was blowing. And and that's no disrespect to President Reagan. I mean, maybe he believed it all at the end, but you know, it was he was opportunistic as well. Now, that's different than these guys we're talking about here. W- uh, we uh, Scalia that way. Uh, President Obama plans to nominate someone to replace Justice Scalia. We already know the Republicans have said any nominee is essentially, however the however the process plays out, is dead on arrival. Talk to us about the ramifications of having only eight justices for what maybe eighteen months if if Republicans get their wish. Yeah, I well, yeah, and I think that's. That's about the time frame because you'll have to swear in a new president, and then the new president would have to go through the, uh, you know, background checks and the rest of it. And after that period of time, uh, nominate somebody, and then Congress would have to do its deal. The Senate would. So that's at least eighteen months. It may be longer. Um, so the, the, one of the ramifications, Byron, on this is uh, if you're left with eight members of the court, it's an even number of judges you have or justices. You have nine members of the Supreme Court in order to break ties. And uh, it's conceivable. Uh, I don't think it's always on ideological lines so much as past voting behavior of the court that uh, that you'll have people voting based on past voting behavior and they may end up with four four splits or ties. And so the technical ramification, the first answer to your question, is when you end up with a 4-4 tie and you haven't yet inserted a ninth justice into the process, it basically renders the decision of the Supreme Court um, 
powerless, null, essentially. And what it means is that uh, the the court of pre- previous uh, designation, which would have been a, probably a lower court of circuit court of appeals or perhaps a district court that may have been able to uh, fast-track this to the Supreme Court, whatever was the court that made the previous decision would be the holding that would be the, the final holding on that particular uh, case. And uh, so, you know, depending upon the issue, there'll be some people who would like that and there'll be some people who wouldn't like that. We have a labor case coming out of California. I was going to ask you about that case. Yeah. yeah, it's and I'm, I'm a union member. It's one of those cases, and this is sometimes controversial uh, in unions, that looks at the question of whether or not uh, uh, unions can demand dues and, uh, from people or, or can there be restrictions or regulations on those or a prohibition uh, on those. And... Uh, I think the labor unions in California are probably going to be happy for this and probably not have any you know, interest, at least for their own self-interest, in seeing this uh, process go through very quickly, um, unless President Obama can put on someone who perhaps is sympathetic to labor. Um, because if it ends up being a 4-4 tie, um, it would mean that the previous court of designation, which gave a ruling that was favorable to labor, um, would be the, the final holding on this. Now, on other issues, like some of the ones we've mentioned today, um, that uh, are, are any of the usual kinds of things that might have to do with other social issues or whatever, you might get people who feel differently about this. And and so it, it's not a good idea in, uh, in general to leave a body that should be an odd number of justices uh, in a situation where they could end up being tied and, and basically un, unable to affect the outcome of something. It's, it's inefficient. And uh, that's one ramification. I think the other ramification of this, which is more troubling to me, um, is that the uh, the Senate itself and the Republicans in saying uh, that they're refusing to hold hearings um, are frankly not doing their jobs. The president is right when he says you know, he has a constitutional responsibility to nominate. And uh, there is no deadline that's imposed in the Constitution, you know, like if by April 15th you must nominate or something like that, or the court, the, the Senate must have hearings. But it's it's pretty clear that it should be done in a t- as timely a manner as possible. It wasn't intended to drag on for years, and it certainly was not, I think, the intention of the framers, back to this question of the framers' intent, um, that the Senate – uh, should only hold hearings when the party of the majority in the Senate is also the person, you know, the party that controls the White House. And that's kind of the precedent that's being set here by this behavior. Um, our system of due process, allowing everybody access to the courts and fair access and free access to the courts, depends upon not just Supreme Court justice positions being filled, but all the other federal judges, uh, judgeships being filled as well. And to, so to play games with this stuff, frankly, uh, impacts negatively another ramification, due process of law as well. And, uh, and it means that the Senate is abrogating its responsibility, frankly. I'm going to ask you, just changing gears ever so slightly, um, I'm going to ask you to put on your political analysis hat now. Okay. And um, let's say that President Obama, uh, let's, let's, we're going to play this out the way it looks like it's going to be played out. So President Obama nominates someone. Yeah. And then he and then the Senate either drags their heels or they don't nominate or they don't uh, confirm uh, an individual. Um, and let's say it's not a fire breathing liberal, some, someone who is, you know, set in middle of the road, at least their history. We, as, as you pointed out, we never know how a justice will vote until they actually get on the court. Yeah. What is in that scenario? What would be. The potential downside first, uh, we'll start with the Republicans and then you can go to the Democrats. But what would be the downside for, for Republicans in, in that scenario? If it, well, it depends on how they, and if indeed they do, obstruct the process. If we're starting with the Republicans, 
if they hold if, if they hold to their position that says no hearings until after the election, then to me, I think there would be backlash. Uh, it becomes an autumn. It's already a campaign issue, but it becomes a, a, a pretty good uh, campaign issue for presidential candidates. Um, on the Democratic side to bash Republicans with. It's an opening uh, for you know those who believe that Democrats might have a shot at recapturing the Senate um, to use this as an argument about how the, you know, of the two bodies of Congress, the Senate and the House of Representatives, the Senate has always been seen as a little more reasonable than <laughs> the Senate Republicans than the House Republicans, which are so dominated by that, that cluster of Tea Party uh, representatives. And so I, I think it's nothing but a negative for uh, the, the, the Republican senators and for the Republican Party as well. It's, it's, it's obstructionist. Now, that's if they don't hold hearings. If I'm someone who believes that if they do hold confirmation hearings, you know, it's up to them how they want to vote. I mean, that's that's their call. That's what they get to do because they won that job in the same way that it's the president's call to, to nominate the person he wants to nominate. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, so if they hold hearings, Byron, in a timely manner, but they decide you know, to pass on a particular person, I think the backlash against them will be less as long as they're pretty you know, careful about why they've rejected somebody and it's a legitimate reason to reject. And I, I, I kind of doubt that they're, if they get somebody from the president that there will be a good reason to reject them because he's not going to send over anybody who's going to be controversial. The, the, I can't tell you with certainty. I mean, I have my own suspicions, but I'm not going to say them publicly about uh, two or three people I think he's likely to nominate. I can give you the profile. The profile will be someone, obviously, with some pretty significant, uh, hopefully significant, judicial experience already. You need to have done this before. You don't put an amateur into the situation. And also someone with a prior, it's better to have, I think, a prior history in the federal court system because you also then have a track record in the confirmation process. And so I think he's likely to submit uh, a candidate, and I can think of a couple, uh, that sailed through the Senate last time around. I was going to say, without revealing any names, any of the people you're thinking about got a 97 to nothing vote for confirmation? In I, I think one of those individuals <laughs> would be somebody like that. Yeah, okay. and, and so the logic of that is, you know, you're, you're, then you'll be able to say with a straight face, if you're the, the spokesperson for the White House, this was not a controversial choice before, shouldn't be a controversial choice now. This is a safe vote. You know, pretty good chance they'll probably be centrist if we if we like them and you like them too, and uh, and of course they'll have the sterling background and uh, and so you know the cost to the Republican Party there is is small in the general election. It might raise some hackles within the Republican faithful, especially in certain states where you know like the states that they're holding these caucuses or primaries now in the South where they're uh, the you know the, the fundamentalists or Christian conservatives who are pretty rigid about some of these social issues probably would differ with that but the Republicans still going to be there I mean that's the that's, where else are they going to go they're going to stay with that party mm-hmm. um, you also asked about Democrats I, I think the president's play on this is he should nominate, I mean, he should think about it carefully, they should do all the background checks, and he should send over somebody, like I said, who's, who's got a spotless background and a good uh, history with the Senate from before, and hopefully someone who is really, you'll forgive me using a food analogy, but it's just vanilla ice cream, not not Rocky Road, not uh, right. mint chip, or you know all these flavors you kind of have to like, but you know but, not everybody likes them. Joe, it has Something to be vanilla bean, likes. it has to everybody be vanilla bean, vanilla ice cream. It not has controversial. To, it has to be vanilla bean ice cream, though. Just can't not just too be... vanilla bean. Okay, right? okay, all it's right. Somebody that that someone who is palatable to any senator, and maybe a little boring even, 
right? So they could just say, eh, you know, it's, it's okay. It's, it's, that'll pass under the radar. It's not a controversial choice. The last thing you want to do is to put up somebody on the other side of the spectrum from a Bob Bork, like a, uh, even though I love the stuff he writes, like a, a Larry Tribe from Harvard. Yes, you know, the Harvard yes, professor. yes. extremely yes. controversial on a lightning rod. That's, and he, he, he won't do that. But I'm saying somebody, somebody like that will just make for theater and also feed the Republican narrative that he's just making ideological choices. You know, what he wants to do is pick someone who's a safe choice. The sadistic side of me says he should nominate Joe Biden just for the just for the theatrics of it, not that not that uh, I think. Now remember, Biden has to cure cancer <laughs> 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 next year. <laughs> that's what he promised yeah. in that State of the Union. That's <laughs> right. That's right. That's that's Biden's new job. So and so he so he can moonlight as a Supreme Court justice while 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 curing cancer as well. Yeah. Yeah, Poor Biden. <laughs> no, I, I, I think there's one thing that's safe to say that it, it, it will maybe not in our lifetime. We will certainly have you back for, for other for other issues, especially with this long election season. We plan on having you back. But I don't know in our in our lifetime, will we be having this discussion about uh, a, a Supreme Court justice who was so big in that role? I, it seems unlikely that we will be having a similar conversation. He was, uh, he, he was, uh, I, maybe this is a different way to, 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 to frame, as we leave this topic, to think about one of the questions you asked before about how did he become the scourge of, you know, the conservative justices or whatever, why him and not somebody else? And, you know, if you asked an average person on the street to name members of the Supreme Court, um, I don't know how many names they'd be able to give you, but I'll bet you, I'll bet you that one of the names that they could identify somebody on the court, whether that person was a liberal or conservative on the street, would probably be Antonin Scalia, Justice Scalia. I bet they'd know who he was. And that's its own legacy. Controversial to the end, opinionated, smart, sometimes out of step with the rest, with the rest of the country, uh, on, you know, on where his thinking was, somebody who didn't tolerate fools. And at the end of the day, someone who liked to mix it up, uh, all those things, because that's that's a hell of a legacy. He actually probably relived. Remember the old CNN show Crossfire? Yeah. He, he sort of relived it on the Supreme Court yeah. during oral arguments. <laughs> yes, <he did. laughs> Joe Tuman, I want to thank you so much for being on the public morality today. Thank you so much, Byron. Anytime. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Hey, let's smoke cigars sometime. I had a student, I was thinking of sometimes you post those pictures, uh, enjoying a good one, a good cigar. I had a student who disappeared for two weeks in, in school, and he came back, and he was all apologetic. And he said, I had this chance to go to Cuba, so I went. He said, I should have told you. I knew you'd be mad. He goes, so I brought you this. Brought oh, there you go. You know, he brought me back. A. <laughs> I, that, that looks like an A to me. Uh, that's, like, that's an A bribe. Forget the apple. Just bring me, just bring me a Cohiba. I'm good. There we go. All right. So I've been saving that one when we get together. All right. Okay. Sounds good. You, All right, Byron. Take Thanks care. Thanks so much. Enjoy Thank you. Bye bye. That was San Francisco State University Professor Joseph Tuman. Coming up, State Representative Ed Haynes joins us in studio to discuss the state's recent redistricting plans. When the United States Supreme Court recently declined to stay a lower court ruling, North Carolina's Republican-dominated legislature was forced to redraw its congressional electoral map on the grounds that the original maps amounted to racial gerrymandering. Joining us to discuss the legislature's actions over the weekend is Representative Ed Haynes, Jr. Haynes represents District 72 in North Carolina's state legislature. 
Why don't we begin by you providing a historical context that caused North Carolina State Legislature to hold an emergency session over this past weekend? Right. So a couple of years back, uh, there were a couple of plaintiffs, uh, Democratic Party members, who filed a lawsuit uh, with the federal uh, with the with the federal courts, um, alleging that black voters had been stacked into districts that had been traditionally uh, majority uh, African-American districts. Uh, while certainly we knew that the first district traditionally and the 12th district were majority minority districts uh, and, and made that way uh, purposefully uh, by Democrats. Well, hold it for you. Say, yeah. say, if you will, where the first of 12 districts are. So, so the 12th district is what they have referred to over the years as a serpentine district that stretches from Mecklenburg County all the way across the state up 85 into Durham, traditionally. Uh, so it basically just follows the 85 corridor. Uh, district 1 is a district in the far eastern part of the state that stretches from over 36 counties from Wilson, North Carolina, all the way into Durham. Mm-hmm. All right. And so uh, over the years, uh, the courts have found that um, African-American voters uh, did not have an opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice is what they call it. And so they created these districts to ensure that African-Americans could elect uh, a candidate of their choice, typically, which has been a, a black representative, uh, Representative G.K. Butterfield uh, in the first district and uh, and um, Representative Mel Watt in the 12th for 20 years. And now, of course, it's Representative uh, Alma Ad or Congresswoman Alma Adams. He, and Representative Watts is now in the Obama administration. Is now in the Obama administration. And so what has happened, though, as the Republicans have taken charge in Raleigh, what has happened is that more and more black voters have been stacked into these districts. And the reason they were stacked was to make sure that they had no influence in counties outside of the districts. Uh, So it basically was to only give you voice in two or three districts at most. And so the the lawsuit was filed uh, basically saying that the districts were discriminatory because they took the voices of black voters and silenced them everywhere else except in these in these two districts that we're talking about in particular. And uh, the uh, federal appellate court uh, in Richmond found in favor of the plaintiffs and ordered the General Assembly to redraw these districts in a manner uh, that was consistent with the Voter Rights Act and Section 2 of the Voter Rights Act and that gave a uh, more fair and balanced approach uh, to what we're trying to do in terms of getting black voices heard uh, across the state and districts. So what actions specifically did, did, did the legislature take this weekend? Right. So what we did is we spent the entire week uh, and um, the Republican uh, legislators basically redrew the maps. So the Democratic legislators, frankly, didn't have a lot to, to do with that. Uh, they presented maps that are without question uh, more appealing to the eye. In other words, they eliminated uh, this serpentine district that stretched across you know, the state. They eliminated that. Uh, they made the districts more compact, uh, which was one of the points that the federal gov- that the uh, federal courts uh, wanted to have happen. But what they also did was did it just enough to get just enough uh, white voters or and, and or just remove enough black voters to make it look better according to the map. So you don't see all of these twisting and winding districts anymore. But essentially, uh, they maintained a 10 to 3 advantage uh, for their districts. And in the process, they eliminated uh, Representative Alma Adams district uh, or Congresswoman Alma Adams district uh, in Greensboro. So they put her into a district that basically is not winnable now. And they created a vacant seat in a new 12th district that is 90 percent Mecklenburg County. 
And in doing so, they created certainly a 50-50 representation in Mecklenburg County, but they created a 70 percent white voting populace. And so the reality of the situation is that the 12th district uh, could certainly end up being won by a Republican under the proper circumstances. And so we could literally drop from 10 to 3 to 11 to 2 overnight. So so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying in one sense, this is actually, even though the Republicans uh, Party are the ones who drew the lines for their own political advantages initially. Sure. They could very well, this could very well be a boon for them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It could be. If if uh, if our if Democratic voters do not get out and get registered and vote, uh, if we get into a situation in Mecklenburg County uh, in the 12th district where we have seven or eight African-American uh, representatives and, uh, and folks who want to go to Congress running for this seat, uh, we could certainly end up in a situation where an African-American is not the representative of the 12th district for the first time in 24 years. Uh, and beyond that, You could end up in a situation where a Republican, moderate Republican could end up winning that seat, because if if a white Democratic candidate uh, wins that seat in Mecklenburg County in the 12th and they are matched up with a Republican moderate out of Mecklenburg County, then it becomes a business deal for the businessmen of, of Mecklenburg County, for the for the bankers, for the hedge fund managers, et cetera, et cetera. And at that point, uh, Senators Burr and Senators Tillis get involved, you know, mm-hmm. in that race down there. And I think we understand where that's going. If they right. get involved in that race, we know where that's going. Uh, you touched on it earlier, so I just want to come back to it. Um, the, but would you say that the actions taken by the legislature uh, over the weekend were consistent with the Voting Rights Act? No, I wouldn't. I, <clears throat> I, I would say that one of the... One of the precepts of of what we did, we laid out six or the Republicans presented six rules of play that we were going to abide by in terms when we were redrawing these districts. One of them was that we would not consider race. And Section two of the Voter Rights Act uh, explicitly says that race can be considered. It doesn't say it must be, but it always has been considered. And I think that is the underlying understanding of what this is about. And so the fact that they drew districts without considering race, uh, frankly, as I explained on the floor, uh, is just subterfuge toward what they were really trying to do. And that was to create districts uh, that silence the voices of of Democratic voters and most specifically silence the vo- voices of people who look like the two of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Representative Haynes was referring to two of us being we're both tall. That's that's, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I was wondering, just sort of, uh, uh, just in terms of the process, uh, how, if any way, did the passing of uh, Justice Scalia did it play an impact uh, on the work that you all had to do this weekend? Yeah, you know, what's what's really interesting is that. It should have played an impact on it, and it should have and it should have uh, impacted uh, my Republican colleagues not to do what they did, because now you have a four-four court, and so what we're what we're looking at right now uh, is a situation where if we send these maps back, which we have, uh, the lower court um, can look at these maps and say we don't like those, and we're going to redraw them, and they could redraw the maps in such a way that uh, it could end up being a 7-6 split, Republican to Democrat, instead of a 10-3 split. Um, it could end up being anything and everything that you can imagine. 
just based upon the courts deciding how they want the maps to look. And then because Justice Scalia is uh, is deceased, it would then go to the Supreme Court for approval and they would they would split 4-4, which means the lower court's maps would stand. And so all of this work would have gone into creating maps that we have nothing to do with and no control over now. And so it could really throw this whole situation into chaos. I would have imagined uh, that they would have seen that and understood the implications of doing the wrong thing and drawn maps that every Everybody would have agreed to if they had drawn a 9-4 split, leaving the triad and putting together a triad district consisting of Guilford County and Center City, Winston-Salem. Uh, I can guarantee you we would have been down there two days instead of six and there wouldn't have been one complaint from uh, from the Democratic side of the aisle. And the judges would have signed off on this thing. and We would have been rolling. So you just raised something here. I just want to come back to it. So it's sure. quite possible that... Um, the, the lower court could look at this map and not um, approve it. Sure. They could say, uh, we've listened to the transcript. We've read the transcript. We've listened to the audio from the meetings. Not only did you write rules that said you were going to violate Section 2 of the Voter Right Act, you, in fact, did it. And, uh, and you repeated it over and over again that that's what you were going to do. And so they could rule against these maps and, and we could either be redrawing them again or they could just draw them themselves. Well, and I, I want to sort of go to the, the, the macro uh, piece of this. So what, what, however this outcome, however this plays out, what about the person who's already voted absentee? Did the legislature uh, factor those individuals in at all? Uh, we did, which is why we're having, which is why we're having special elections. And so those uh, those folks will in fact be allowed to vote in their new districts. They will have to ask for you know new for new absentee ballot forms. Uh, but that's why the the uh, filing date uh, does not close until March 25th. That's why we had to push this thing down the road a little bit to take into account that you have some 8,000 people who have already voted. Mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure their votes aren't lost along the way. So they will have an opportunity to participate. And what about what about those who may be in I'm just going on what you just said, assuming that, um, let's say, uh, the district where uh, Representative Adams uh, now represents, mm-hmm. let's say she um, she's not on the ballot. That's a different district. Mm-hmm. And it's a new district. How does that, how does that work for people who've already voted? Right. So there. So there. Uh, so what will happen is that those those folks um, those ballots are already drawn, as mm-hmm. you said. So when the fir- when it comes through, those votes won't be counted. When it comes through on a reg- on the regular ballot, those votes won't be counted. You be in the, the March point. That's the March right. Point. And so and what will happen is uh, the the folks who have been changed into different districts, they they will be alerted, you know, that they are no longer in the 12th, or they will have to, uh, they will they will know that they are no longer in the 12th or no longer in the 13th or in the new 6th or, or whatever it might be. And again, they will have, uh, at this point, it's, what, 45 days to mm-hmm. get their absentee ballot and file. So they will be able to participate. Mm-hmm. As if, as if uh, voter participation is not low enough. That's right. Um, do you have a guesstimate on how much this will cost taxpayers to be distributing? You know, that's a good question. Um, the number that was the number that was thrown around was three or four million dollars um, because you're having to go through this process, you mm-hmm. know, all over again. Uh, one of the 
one of the points that uh, a legislator made that I actually thought was an interesting point was uh, that it's not only just going to cost taxpayers, uh, it's going to cost participants. It's going to cost people who have set up campaigns, who have put their family on the line for you know any number of months now, uh, who are going to have to go back out and, and ask people for more money you know, to continue running or to run entirely new you know campaigns, which is going to tax the people you know even more. So we're certainly presenting uh, a tax on uh, the citizens of North Carolina by pushing this back. And they're going to get hit again uh, because the the campaigns are going to be out of money and going to have to come back again and ask for for more support. So in, in actuality, we really won't know until this process is over. That's right. That's right. Um, just switching gears finally, uh, putting your prognostication hat on, is North Carolina swing state in 2016? Yeah, I, I still think we're uh, I still think we're purple. I still think we're uh, I still think we're important. Uh, and I'm assuming you're talking about national, the, the national, national presidential election. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, there have been a, there's been enough happen in North Carolina over the last three years since I've been in the General Assembly uh, to get people calling me uh, from all over the country and to get people writing articles all over the country about what the heck is going on in North Carolina. How do we go from being a uh, fairly fairly liberal among our southern brothers mm-hmm. uh, to be in a state uh, where uh, Texas, legislators from Texas and Arkansas are calling our Republican uh, colleagues and saying, man, how, how on earth did you do that and, and show us how to how to get it done? Uh, that's exactly you know what we are now. So I think we have enough folks who kind of see the mistakes along the way, who've taken a look at what was supposed to happen with our unemployment insurance um, and have seen that those reductions in unemployment insurance have actually resulted in more people being unemployed than fewer people being unemployed in full-time jobs. And this is what the Republicans were pushing, that if you if you remove the amount of time people can stay on unemployment, they'll go get a job. Well, what's happened is folks have gone to get any job they can get part-time or otherwise, have moved more young people out of entry-level positions where they can actually learn to work and learn to be productive and are stitching together two and three part-time jobs uh, because they don't have sufficient time or support to look for a full-time job. And so they're not counted as employed unless they're on full-time employment roles. And so we've we've seen what's happened with that. I think the nation has seen what's happened with that. They're looking at what the state has done in terms of their attack on women. Um, and all of these things are going to amount to uh, hopefully a, uh, a Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders victory uh, in the state of North Carolina. Representative Ed Haynes, I want to thank you so much for being on the public rally today. Glad to be here. That was State Representative Ed Haynes Jr. Coming up, my closing remarks. Next time on The Public Morality, we will discuss the direction of North Carolina's death penalty and its potential impact on the nation. That's next time on The Public Morality. One of the most charged words in the American lexicon, racism can at times be used in the same cavalier manner we use and, but, and or. Because of the role of racism has played in the pursuit of the elusive, more perfect union, we are quick to give attention when charges of racism are levied, especially when it's someone we deem credible. That appeared to be the case when Princeton University professor Imani Perry claimed that during a recent traffic stop, she was mistreated because of her race by two white police officers. After her arrest and release, 
Perry took to social media to say that she was arrested for having a single outstanding parking ticket. She further claimed the male officer, while there was a female officer also at the scene, had performed an inappropriate body search and that she had not been allowed to make a phone call before being placed in custody. And then while she was in custody, she was handcuffed to a table at the police station. In the court of public opinion, Perry's charges recall recent tragic incidents such as the fatal shooting of Michael Brown by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, and the chokehold death of Eric Garner by officers in Staten Island. But there is more to the story. Perry was actually stopped for driving 67 miles per hour in a 45-mile-per-hour zone. Moreover, her driving privileges had been suspended and a warrant had been issued for her arrest for two unpaid parking violations dating back to 2013. The warrant demanded that the person be taken into custody. The tragedy in this yarn is that Perry's failure to take responsibility led her to retreat into the briar patch of racist claims. In doing so, she devalues those who may indeed be victims of institutional racism. America's original sin is too important and our collective understanding too tenuous and too sophomoric for someone to make outlandish charges. It also reflects how reactionary racism can be where critical thinking takes a back seat to emotion. Assuming momentarily that was some legitimacy to Perry's claims, it must be done so through the lens that she was driving 22 miles over the speed limit on a suspended license with a warrant for her arrest. It is to believe that only people of color would be stopped under such quote-unquote benign circumstances. Given Perry's standing as a Princeton University professor, along with the unfortunate legacy of racial profiling, it is easy to understand why many would rush to her defense. But her claims were built on a foundation of mendacity and lack of responsibility. She owes all those who took the reactionary road of support an apology. That would require she take accountability for her actions, which was sorely missing when this fiasco began. And it further explains the difficulty in our pursuit of a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments, questions, and suggestions for upcoming shows. To contact us, you can email at Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron at publicmorality.org. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Hey.